Good morning, y'all. How are you? You're live, kicking good, feeling good? Um, we are going to be getting in God's word here. Uh, my name's Nick. If I haven't met you, uh, I'd love to meet you afterwards. Otherwise, um, you can open up your Bibles. Luke chapter 15 is where we're going to be. If you need a Bible, uh, raise your hand and we'll, we'll get one to you. But I'm just going to dive right in here. Um, cause we do want to leave a little room at the end of our service actually to just kind of pray for, um, the three seniors that are, uh, with us here this morning. So we're going to be Luke 15, second week in this text. I'm going to read verses one and two for context and then, uh, drop down with me to the parable, um, in verses 11 through 32. So I'll read it, pray. And we'll, uh, we'll get moving. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. He divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in in reckless living. And when he'd spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, You are always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost 
and is found. Let's pray, guys. God, we are here this morning to hear from you. And I think you have an important word for the churchgoer, <laughs> for the religious folks among us. There's a danger that comes with sitting in the pew, doing the church thing, being the good boy or the good girl. There's a danger that this text exposes the self-righteousness and the pride and the feeling of entitlement and the sense that you owe us a wage for all that we've been doing. God, we can, we can make a mess of what could otherwise be so beautiful. So Jesus, I'm praying today that you would take our self-righteous, external religiosity and bring it to the ground. Whatever facades we've built up, I pray they would start to crack and crumble. And God, I pray that what we would see is the cross in fresh and new ways. And it's not just the flagrant, blatant sinner that needs the cross. It's the clean on the outside, self-righteous, hypocritical, religious folk that need it as well. God, forgive us. God, lead us to Jesus this morning at break. Amen. Um, okay, so this is now our second week in this parable. And um, some of you are probably, most of you even, are, are probably familiar with this text. Um, I think even those who don't have a background in uh, church or even relative familiarity with the scriptures uh, are familiar with and may have even heard about the parable of what's been termed the, the prodigal son and this text that we have before us uh, this morning. Now, last week, and I, I can't make the case for it again this time, but um, last week I mentioned that I think we got the title uh, historically wrong here. That there are, there's not just one son to focus on. There's not just the prodigal son in this parable. But there's another son in the mix. The parable even begins. I mean, Jesus says it there in verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. He starts off right away. I want you to know there's two here. What we come to realize is that when we consider verses 1 and 2 in the context for this initial address and, and, and when Jesus is first speaking this parable, who he's speaking to, what we realize is that there are, in fact, two groups uh, in audience that day. That verse 1, what we see, there are tax collectors and sinners. They, these are the folks, like the prodigal son, you could say, who, who have kind of ran off from God and tried to get the world. They've tried to cheat their way towards uh, satisfaction and pleasure. 
But they're repenting. They're coming back to God and they're sitting around the table with Jesus. And it's as if he's kind of celebrating with them, enjoying fellowship and communion with these tax collectors and sinners, with these prodigal type folks. That's one group. But then there's a second group in audience that day as Jesus is sharing this parable. And it's what we see there in verse two, the Pharisees and scribes. And these brothers are standing at a distance. These are some of the religious leaders in Israel, and they can't believe that Jesus would be sharing table with with people of of like nature as, as these sinners over here. And they're grumbling to themselves, refusing to enter in, refusing to take a seat there, refusing to celebrate. In other words, these are, if you were reading carefully or listening carefully as we um, read our text, these are those older son sort of people whom we might call the, the externally religious. They look clean on the outside. They wouldn't touch us. Get away from me. You're going to pollute me. They look good on the outside, but what we come to find out is that there's something else going on on the inside. It's this older son that we're going to focus in on this morning. It's this religious son that we're going to focus in on here this morning. Now, um, I should say one more thing before we dive in. Um, Last time I, I mentioned that these two sons, in many ways, I think represent kind of the two basic approaches that we as human beings take in trying to achieve satisfaction, joy and fulfillment. So all of us want we all sense this ache, this longing, this desire to be full, this desire to be home, this desire to, to have satisfaction and, and, and joy. And we kind of go our different ways trying to get it. But at bottom there are, I think, at least as far as fallen humanity goes, there are two basic approaches. The approach, number one, uh, well, the prodigal is kind of the poster child for that approach. He, he, here we have the idea of uh, what I called last time self-indulgence. What we see with him is, listen, I want what I want and I want it now. I want the world and I want as much of it as quickly as I can get it. So he says, Daddy, sell off whatever it is that is my part that I have coming to me. I want it all. I'm going to take it and I'm going to squander it on whatever comes before me. Whatever seems good. I just want the world and I want it now. Self-indulgence. And it ultimately, as we saw last time, didn't work. Left him empty. And in the mud with the pigs. But now this week we come to the second approach and it's the approach of the older or the religious son here. Now he's the poster child of a different sort of way. It's the approach I might call of self-righteousness or legalism. So this approach looks at the prodigal side and goes, oh, no, no. Okay, that looks foolish. That looks like a mess. That looks all sloppy. That doesn't look so good. I'm going to go about fulfillment and satisfaction, getting the stuff of the world a different way. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be the good boy. I'm going to be the disciplined one. I'm going to be the obedient one. I'm going to forsake a few things now, trusting that soon and very soon it will all be mine. Different approaches. 
Two different kind of kids. I'll probably see this as my kids grow up. I bet your parents have seen this sort of thing. One just says, listen, I'm sneaking out in the middle of the night and I don't care. The other's like, yes, mommy, I love you. And then, you know, behind their back or when you give them the allowance, they finally got what they really were after. You know, that sort of thing. Something's off inside. And what we notice, though, is that it's the same basic idea for both. You could drill down even further and go, okay, it's the same sort of thing going on here. Just different approaches. They both feel the longing, the ache, the desire to be fulfilled. They both think that fulfillment is going to come from the father's stuff, not from the father himself. They both want the father's stuff. They just have different ways of getting it. One says, I wish you were dead. Give it to me now. The other says, I'll do whatever you ask, daddy. And then I'll get it. One packs up and heads for the brothel, you could say. The other packs up, gets in his Sunday best, and heads into the church. But they're both after the same thing. Both hearts far from the Father. Far from God. Now, last week's sermon then, uh, that focused in on the prodigal and his approach, I suppose you could say uh, it's for those folks that are tempted to leave the church for the world. But this week's sermon, as we focus in on the older son, is a different, has a different audience in view. Now we're talking about those people who very well may forsake the world for the church. They're pressing into the church. They're here on Sunday mornings. They're raising their hands in worship. They may even be volunteering for kids ministry. Gosh, I love people that volunteer for kids ministry. But why are they doing it? Why are they here? What are they hoping to get out of it? What's in it for them? So here's what we're going to do uh, this morning. Um, We're going to essentially do what I did with the prodigal last week. If you recall, if you were here last week, we um, looked at his approach to fulfillment. We looked at the fallout of that approach and how it all just crumbled apart. And then we looked at the way home. How does the prodigal get home? Well, we're going to do the same thing with this religious older son now. The approach, the fallout, and the way home. Um, So obviously then, uh, just to kind of clarify, we're going to be looking mainly zeroing in on uh, verses 25 through 32 in our text. I just read the verses prior for context, and um, hopefully uh, that kind of refreshed you in terms of the story. Now, let's take the approach here. Verses 25 through 27 in particular start to bring this out. And again, this is what I've been calling the approach of self-righteousness or legalism or empty religion. And um, in verse 25, if you notice, we're already clued into it. It, it, It's brilliant. Jesus uh, has this incredible way. And this parable is amazing. Every detail he's just bringing out is kind of like, Uh, it's a clue towards something, towards a deeper meaning that he's getting at. And I want you to notice verse 25, he's already hinting at the problem with this older son, or at least his MO, his basic approach to trying to find fulfillment. What do we see? Verse 25. Now his older son was where? In the field. Doing what? Working hard. Being a good boy. 
I mean, while the prodigal was off in the far off country, wasting his inheritance and all this stuff, man, the, the, the older son is here faithfully upkeeping the father's property and faithfully working and being the good boy. He's in the field. That's where he is. That's his approach. I'm going to work hard and then I'm going to get it. And then I'm going to get what I want. He looks good. He looks righteous. He looks clean. But as we keep reading, we get the sense that something is a bit off. So look now, uh, verse 25 through 27. Let's read him. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. Now, there really is something to bring out here, and I, I want you to see it. Um, the picture that Jesus is presenting here, it seems, is that this older son is somehow the last one to know that his younger son, his younger brother has has arrived. But like the whole village knows. At this point, right? There's a party going on. There's music. There's dancing. And the fattened calf's been killed. They're all in there. Everybody, even the servant knows. But not this older son. Now, we can't misunderstand what's being um, said here. It's not as if the father has been keeping this from the son. I don't want him to know. No, we'll, we'll see that very clearly. I think it's verse 28 where the father will come out of the party and entreat him to, to get in. Excuse me. So it's not as if he's been trying to keep the older son out of the party. I don't want him to know that guy's a killjoy. He's always working. It's not fun. Let's just let him stay out there. That's not what this is about. I think what's being highlighted here actually is the danger of empty religion. The danger of working for God uh, without a real heart, with a disconnect actually from God. Does that make sense? So he's out there busy working for his father. Meanwhile, he's losing touch with his father's heart. Because here's what his father's doing, throwing a party, celebrating, rejoicing. His father was at the window waiting for the prodigal to return. This older son didn't even notice Certainly wasn't looking for it. And as we'll find out, is upset that he's back. You see, there's a disconnect between father and son here that's being highlighted in our text. In this story at this point. Something's off, though he is working diligently. You get this sense that maybe it's not with the father like we thought. For the father like we thought. Maybe it's about something else. You know, with the prodigal, one of the interesting things is, I mean, he so he got his inheritance and he went off to a far, far country, right? But I think what our text is highlighting here, what Jesus is bringing out, is perhaps the reality that though this older son always stayed at home, never left, perhaps he's actually further than the prodigal ever was. Here, he's near in vicinity. You're in, 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 in terms of location, but he's distant in heart. He's might as well be off in a far country. As far as the heart is concerned. 
Now, again, this is the danger of empty religion. And what we're going to see is that there's going to be a fallout. The son was doing all these things, hoping that, hey, this would get him what he was after and it would fulfill. It would satisfy. But something's going to fail here. Something's going to fall out here. And what we're going to see is that though it starts off looking good, it's going to end in a mess. Miserable and broken, empty and outside the party. No home for him. No fullness for him when you take this approach. So let's look at the fallout now. This is verses 28 through 30 in the fallout. Um, the older son has created this sort of facade. Okay. He's the good boy. He's the obedient one. He, he, he's the one who you could never imagine doing what the prodigal went off and did. He's got this facade that he's created for himself. But this facade now is going to start to crack. There's some things that are starting to be exposed. And I'm going to bring out seven of these cracks, you could say. We're going to make our way from the external stuff into the real heart of the matter. <laughs> and I want you to see this. We're just going to move through these verses bit by bit. The first thing to notice, crack number one, is his anger. Anger. There's this dissonance, and it's, it's meant to kind of shock us. Uh, there's this dissonance between the father's emotions, what the father is feeling, and what the son, this older son, is feeling in the very same moment about the very same thing. So you see it there, right? The father is throwing a party. There's music and dancing. There's joy. In his heart. But when the younger son hears of this. He was angry. Verse 28. There's anger in him. It's what you might call a perpendicular sentiment. Okay. It's running contrary to what God feels. It's like this idea of, you know, we sometimes pray that break my heart for what breaks yours. You know, well, there's there's that reality where sometimes the things that break God's heart bring us joy. And sometimes the thing that bring him joy, break our heart, <clears throat> get us, get us all up in a mess, seething inside. How could you? <clears throat> That's when you know man, something is off. There's a crack in the facade at this point. The father's happy and the son is angry about the very same chain of events. Now, uh, as we read on, we start to see more of why. Crack number two, I would say, is this idea of comparison. There's this comparison taking place. Uh, look at verses 29 through 30. He says this, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. So this older son is looking at how he's being treated. He's comparing. Hey, look, this is what you're doing for the son who wasted his inheritance. Now you're throwing this party for him. Where's my party? I've been slaving away here in the field working for you. Where's my party? What do I got to do to get your attention? Go run off and waste all your stuff? Act like the rebel. Then you'll care about me. Is that what this is? Then you'll give me some stuff with my friends to enjoy. There's comparison going on here. And I wonder, have you ever been there? I mean, I think 
We all have in one way or another. I'll just give you one potential example. I mean, you prayed for the healing. You prayed for the miracle. You prayed for that help, that job to be yours or to open up. Or you prayed for that uh, baby. Either you could get pregnant and you prayed for that spouse, whatever. You prayed for it. And it's like God just shut the door to heaven. Just in your face. And you watch someone else praying for it. Very same sort of things you're praying for. And then it's like God just opens up the door, you know, leans his ear in, takes some notes about what they're saying and does that and more for that individual. And then they show up on a Sunday and they're giving their testimony. Let's get them the mic. Oh, God has been so faithful to me. And in your heart, you go, my goodness, I'm going to get up and walk out of this place. If I have to hear another testimony of God's faithfulness to someone else. What about me? Right? I mean, been there. My goodness, I've been there. God's feeling joy and, and blessing. We're feeling anger, hurt, comparing. But we keep going on. There's stuff underneath this. And that's what we'll kind of get to as we move through this. Crack number three is what I'd call accusation. This comparison gives way to accusation. And you noticed that, I think, didn't you? As he's comparing what his brother's getting and what he's getting, he feels like it's unfair. He's angry, not just in some general sense. He's angry at his father. He's not just upset in general. He's upset at his dad. How could you do this? The accusations start to hurl in the father's direction. You're unfair. You're unjust. You're being irresponsible with your stuff. This is the kid who wastes it all. Don't give him any more. You're being foolish. Now. This is Jesus' way of touching on what the Pharisees and scribes were doing back up in verse 2. This is his way of, remember, he's here in this story trying to get at the hearts of the Pharisees and scribes, the religious older son type. And what are they doing in these moments? As Jesus is sitting around the table with sinners and tax collectors, they got their arms crossed and they're grumbling to themselves, how could he be eating with these sinners? What is he doing? And here is the very same sort of thing, this grumbling of the older son on the outside. What in the world, dad, are you doing in there with a kid like that throwing a party like this? It's ridiculous. It's unfair. It's unjust. It's inappropriate. It's unwise. They're grumbling against God in view of the mercy and kindness he's willing to show prodigal sinners. You know, as I was preparing this, I couldn't help but think of Jonah at this point. If you know his story, then, then you maybe know where I'm going to go. But there's this text. It's, 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 it's amazing. Jonah's kind of like a Peter figure where he just kind of says whatever's on his mind. And you're like, oh, my gosh, he just said that to God. I guess he did. And it kind of gives you hope for your own dark heart that you don't ever want anyone else to know about. 
Like, so Jonah's called to be a prophet, right, to the Ninevites there, this Gentile pagan nation. And, and he's first called to, like, go and, and warn them about judgment that's coming. And then when he actually does get there and he warns them, uh, and, and it, uh, they turn and they repent. And then God relents from the disaster and the judgment that he was going to bring upon them. And then this is what Jonah says in Jonah 4, 1 through 3. This is what we see about his response. As he's watching, uh, these guys repent and he hears that God's going to no longer judge them. It displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. In other words, I'm so mad at you. I didn't want to do this because I knew if I came and I preached, the judgment was coming and they turned that you'd show mercy. <laughs> and I don't want these guys to have your mercy. I want them to have your judgment. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. <laughs> do you hear this guy? He said, listen, all right, fine. If you're not going to bring judgment on them, kill me instead. Because I would rather die than share the table with folks like these. I don't want you to be their God. What does that say about me then? If, if pagans and dirty folk like this can come in and you'll accept them. Seems to lower my standard. I mean, now all of a sudden I'm keeping company with folks that make me not look so good. I don't want that, right? You see, he was angry. He was angry because of grace. Something's wrong. I wonder, have you ever accused God of being unfair? Anyone? Either in the way he chooses to bless another or in the way it seems he's not blessing you. God, you're unfair. Why would you do this to me? I don't deserve this. God, why in the world would you be blessing that person? Are you kidding me? I don't think they've had a devotion all year. Right? I'm fasting, praying, and life's just getting harder. There's something underneath this. Crack number four. Hyperbole, hyperbole. So when we start to feel threatened in this way, we we start to exaggerate in ways that serve ourselves. Hyperbole here, what I simply a nice way of saying this guy is going blind to reality in his pride. He's going blind to the way things really are. And we watch as he starts to do this here. You see it in the way he uses the word never. Okay, he uses it twice in verse twenty nine. Never. I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Let's take those each at one at a time here. I never disobeyed. Do you think that's true? I mean, the Pharisees and the scribes, it was all about the letter of the law, not the spirit. So they would. Oh, they very well might try to uphold every little jot and tittle of the law. Meanwhile, the spirit is so far and off. But beyond even that, the irony is, is that right now, this older son is disobeying the father. The father's gone out to entreat him, saying, come in. And the older son is saying, no. 
I'm so mad because I've never disobeyed you. (laughs) Number two, you never gave me a young goat. Do you think that's true? All of a sudden, the father is this stingy. Uh uh. Nope, I'm going to withhold everything from you. All of a sudden, everything is black and white for this son. You never give me anything. And the father will push back later, as we'll see. He says, All that I have is yours. And he's not just talking metaphorically there. I think he's actually speaking literally. Because if you remember, uh, the, the younger son said, Divide up. I want my share of the inheritance now. The younger son's inheritance is gone. Literally now, all that the father has will go to the older son. And yet the son is here with his arms crossed saying, man, you give me nothing. It's hyperbole. It's exaggeration. He's going blind to his own sin and to God's grace and goodness. Crack number five, hardness. He's going more than blind. He's going hard. He's turning to stone, we could say. I I wonder if you noticed that tragic little detail there at the beginning of verse 30. I want you to listen to how the older son speaks of his brother. Did you notice it? When this son of yours is how he refers to his brother. When this son of yours... Now, this word choice is very telling. He doesn't say, when my brother came back. When this son of yours. It's as if to say, I can't even bring myself to call him brother. As far as I'm concerned, he's not my brother. I'm disassociating from him. I'm separating myself from him. I will not hang out with him, let alone celebrate with him. Are you kidding me? This son, if you want him, fine, you own him. This son of yours. But no brother of mine. You see, I think what's happening here is he can't even imagine himself in, in, in the younger son's position. We're not cut from the same cloth. I could never do what he did. It's, it's ridiculous. He deserves to be out there with the pigs. Go back to the pigs from where you came. You're no longer a part of this family. I don't share genes with you. Mm -mm. Let me ask you something. There's a question that I, in my studies, came across and I I found it helpful to kind of see, is this in us? Because as we're kind of going through these various various cracks, I, I want us to be trying them on almost like shoes. Do these fit me in any way? Is this... Does this, is this, am I like the older son? Sometimes. So let me ask you a question to get at this hardness piece. Um, when you see someone in sin, when you see someone in pretty grievous, aggravated, blatant sin, is the first thing that kind of erupts in you disdain, disgust? Or is it compassion? Does your heart harden towards that person or those people? Or does it break for them? I'm just going to put some graphic images on this just to get real with you for a moment. When you're watching TV and 
You know, some LGBTQ character comes on and they're doing what they do. Do you, in disgust, almost just kind of throw up in your mouth and change the channel and blah? But I hate those sorts of people doing their... Or does your heart break? Is there compassion? We can still call sin, sin without being jerks about it. It should break our hearts because we recognize we're cut from the same cloth. We do the same sorts of stuff. We need the same sorts of mercy. If you were to watch Jesus walk by you, find some of those folks, sit down at the table with them and share a meal, how would you feel? Because that's what my Savior would do. Or if you're watching the news and, you know, you see those people lobbying for abortion rights. Talking about how it's a woman's body. We get to do what we want to do. Does that just get you hot under the collar? You start yelling back at the TV like my grandma does. <laughs> it's actually really funny to watch. <laughs> Or are you broken up about it? I mean, is it sin? Yes. Is it murder? Yes. Is it horrible? Yes. Is it heartbreaking? Yeah. Should we move towards those folks? Call them to Jesus? Yes. Should we sit down and eat with them? Sure. Should we have compassion? Absolutely. Jesus would move towards them. Are you? Crack number six, then, and here's where we start to get really into the heart of the matter with these last two, six and seven. Um, crack number six is this idea of slavery. Um, uh, what's going on underneath the anger, underneath the comparison and accusation, hyperbole and hardness? What's happening in this older son's heart? All this stuff is kind of exposing the facade is there, but there's something inside that is not right. What is it? Well, I think we're given window into what this is back up there in verse 29. I want to look at it once more and bring out a few things for you. He says this, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Now, stop. The older son with these words in this moment is showing his cards. He's exposing his heart. He is he, he is he is he is making plain now how he's been relating to dealing with viewing his relationship with the father. I'll bring out three things for you to see. First thing to note is that he's been counting the years. Keeping track of the years. These many years, he says. Listen, when God doesn't have your heart, you give yourself to calculations. You punch a clock, your time card. You, you, you keep track of all the ways you've served him and how long you've been doing it because you're waiting for payday. What you're really after. When's it going to come? I'll work hard if the paycheck's coming. 
But nobody just loses track of their hours. Oh, I just love working so much. No, you're counting the time. You're, when is it? Five o'clock. I'm off. Right? I'm going to get home. I don't want to be doing this. But if it gets me what I really want, then fine, I will. Serving the Father isn't where his heart was. Being with the Father isn't where his heart was. And it's starting to become clear. Second thing to note, though, is his use of the word served there. In the Greek, it's the word douluo, which means to serve as a slave. Doulos is slave. Douluo is to serve as a slave. He is being very clear about how he feels in this relationship and what it's all about. He says, listen, this many years I have been serving you as a slave. This is not the warm, affectionate relationship of father-child. No, no. Not at least for this older son. Not from his perspective. No, this is a transaction. This is a coal. This is a business deal. I am working for you like a slave for a master. I am waiting for payday. Not my dad. I'm not your kid. I'm working for a wage. Which is why he goes on, I think, to speak of the father's um, commands as well. He feels like his dad is just a master and he's a slave. And so he says, listen, I never disobeyed your command. That's a slave driver sort of word. All you give me is commands. This is how the relationship works. You command, I obey, and I never disobeyed. So pay up. That's what starts to come out. There's this slavery, this slave mentality underneath. It's it's crazy. You can come to church, not to just worship and give thanks and and serve God in that way, but you can come uh, in the same sort of way that you walk into the office to put in your time and get what you really want. So you get to the weekend and go on vacation and spend your money that you made. I wonder if this is how you've been operating with God. Is this why you're in church this morning? Is God the end for you or is he simply a means to the end? Now, underneath all of this, and here's crack number seven. This is the last one in this piece. And then we'll we'll start to draw things to a close. But at the end of the day, what we really have under all of this is what the Bible calls idolatry. It's what the Bible calls idolatry. And, and the irony in all of this, I think, is that the man who was convinced he had broken no commandments is ultimately shown to have broken the first and greatest. I mean, as far as Moses' Ten Commandments are concerned, it's the first on that list. Exodus 22. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. Your heart should be set on me before it's set on anything else. We see this son has his heart set on other things. Or in um, in uh, Mark twelve thirty, Jesus kind of sums this up this way. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Love. The heart is set on the father, on God, with love. All of your being set on him with love. The relationship is what drives any service that you do. Not the transactional thing and the wage that you're hoping to get. But what we come to understand is that this son doesn't love the father. He loves the father's stuff. 
Did you see that there? What is he so upset about? What does he want so bad? Why are you so angry? What, what did you want? It's actually quite pathetic when it comes down to it. You want to know what he says? I wanted a goat to eat with my friends. That's what comes to his mind. I wanted a goat. Now, goats are cool. I like goats. But leaving the father for one of his goats. I don't love you. I've just been working for you like a slave. Thank you very much. Now give me my goat so I can go enjoy it with my friends. One commentator uh, remarks on this. It is important to note that the coveted celebration of the older son does not include the father. Do you hear that? I wanted the goat so my friend, my, my homies, my boys and I could go eat it. His dad is nowhere in view. It's idolatry. It's using God to get something else that your heart is really set on. The, the ultimate irony, if I could even go further. And this again, I guess I'm getting a little graphic today, but this may be PG-13. Um, it occurred to me as I was reading the older son's problem with the younger Remember what he says? He says, man, this son of yours, he has he's devoured your property with prostitutes. Well, what is prostitution? What is it? It's. It's basically a transaction between you and another person that says, I want your body, but I don't care about your soul. I'll pay you. Please me. I don't care about you when it's done. Go home. Now, in much the same way, what this older son is all worked up about the younger son doing, saying, I could never be like that. He's not part of my family. What a crazy, I mean, what horrible. I want you to understand he's doing the same sort of thing, not just with a woman, but with God himself. He is saying, God, I don't care about you. I want your stuff and I'll pay the price. For the pleasure that I want. I'll give you your work. You give me my goat. And I'll go on my way. And if you don't, I discard you. Because I don't care about you. It's theological prostitution. That's what idolatry is. It's crazy. So what we come to find out is that this older son, though he looks miles apart and so different from the younger... It's actually just on the same broken, tattered ground in need of grace. The same sort of stuff has been at work in his heart. They both didn't care about the father, just wanted the father's stuff. They're just trying to get it in different ways. And they both experienced the fallout of their approaches. And they're just laying on the ground in the dirt. Empty. The son standing on the porch outside the party, protesting. So, if you're the older son, if you've been doing the religious church thing, if you've been trying to barter with God, if you're noticing the anger and the comparison and the hardness and all of that, what do you do to get out of it? Or in other words, third point here, what's the way home? We've seen the approach, we've seen the fallout, it doesn't work. What's the way home? This is where we get to verses 31 and 32. Last time... Um, if you recall, 
we looked at, at the prodigal son in verses 17 through 20. I talked about how there were four things involved in genuine repentance and his kind of return home. Um, those four things uh, were these. Come to yourself. You've got to come to yourself. Own your sin. Acknowledge your place. And fourth and finally, enter freely in. So what we saw with the prodigal is that he, came, as he's there in the mud, he came to himself, realizes, man, I, I, I was, I, I'm created, I'm designed to be a, I'm a son. What am I doing here in the mud? He owned up to his sin. He said, I have sinned. I'm going to go to my father, I'm going to tell him, I have sinned. And then he understood that in light of what he's done, as he says it, I'm not worthy to be here. I'm not worthy to be called your son. I mean, I've disinherited myself. I don't belong here. I know my place. I get it. Sin has removed me, has, has, has ostracized me from my father. And yet, fourth, what we see is he, he still goes anyways. He goes home anyways. Because he's, he, he, he knows his God or his father can be merciful. And may still accept him. He enters freely in is what we find out. Now, I bring this up because I actually think these are the same four things that the father now is going to try to do, try to get at with his older son. And I want you to see it as we look at verses 31 and 32. I'll take them one by one. So first, the idea, come to yourself. If you want to start on your way home from either the prodigal's place in a far off country or the older son's place on the porch, Outside the party. The first thing is to come to yourself. Now, I want you to see this in verse 31. What's the first word that the father says in his response to all these accusations and things that the, that the older son is saying? All this just toxic venom that's being spewed out. How does the father respond? What's the first word? And he said to him, son. It's incredibly reorienting. He is essentially saying, come to yourself. Recognize who you were created to be. And we know in Jesus now who he's redeeming us to be. You're my child. You're created in my image. What are you doing running off after all of these? What are you doing talking to me as if you're a slave and I'm your master? As if I'm your boss and you're my employee? That's not the relationship that we have. I am your father and you are my son. And I love you. You don't want a wage from me. You want a relationship with me. Trust me. Son. He's inviting the boy to come back to himself. It's the first thing that he does with him. And it's what God would do with us as well. See, we get all mixed up and we try to find our home elsewhere in the church. Even I'm the good one. I'm doing all this. We try to get people to praise us or out in the world. I've got the car. I've got the goods. I've got the house. Oh, yes. And everyone's looking at us. We try to find home in all these different places. We try to find that sense of belonging, identity, satisfaction. He's going to listen. No, you're going to find it right here. You're not. You were created for me to be in my family. So all that stuff will never really fit. It'll always feel disjointed. It will never quite get there. Because you're my child. Come to yourself. 
leave behind some of these other things. Now, a second thing that we notice, he, he, he calls the, the son to own his sin. We need to own our sin. The father goes on, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. Now, here again, I think, as I mentioned earlier, is the father's kind of gentle countering of that, that accusation that came at him earlier, that you never give me anything. He's going, all that is mine is yours. But before he says that, he, he, he's basically saying, son, you're not, you're not seeing correctly. I need, you to, I need you to start to see that you're off in this. All that's mine has been yours. But, you know, he actually gets him to try to see something more than that. He goes at the heart of the sin, of the issue. Did you notice? He says something before he talks about all that is mine is yours. He says, you are always with me. You see, the son, this older son, lost the father in his pursuit of the father's goods. He went after the all that's mine is yours stuff instead of the father. He didn't get there by way of loving relationship with the father. And so he ended up losing them both. He went blind to it all. Didn't have the father, didn't have the father's goods as far as he was concerned. Just bitter, hard, angry. And I think the father here is calling him saying, listen. Not only have you missed the fact that I'm freely giving you everything. But most importantly, you've missed me. You've gotten it backwards. Gone after my stuff and you forgot me. If you have me, you have everything. So I think it's sort of an invitation to this son to own his sin, to own that he's been wrong in his accusations. He's been wrong in what he's been doing, that he's in fact been an idolater. He's in fact been been treating the father in inappropriate ways, like a prostitute even. Own your sin. You've missed me. You've traded me. Final, or, uh, third here, acknowledge your place. Acknowledge your place. So come to yourself, own your sin, acknowledge your place. The father goes on in verse 32, and this is amazing. He says this, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now, check this. You remember how the older son talked about his younger brother, right? He said, this your son. Well, now here, the father, it's amazing. The father corrects that as well. Again, in a gentle, loving, but firm way. Did you catch it? It's not this my son or whatever. It's this your brother. Is how he, let's correct that. He's not just my son. He is your brother. Now, there are a couple things that Jesus could be talking about here, and we may look at it a few, actually, next week. I think I might take this up one more time. Um, one is the reconciliation, that, 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 that the, the young, younger son really is a part of the family. But I think the thing I want to draw out here with this idea of acknowledging your place is I think by saying that he is your brother is recognizing that you're cut from the same cloth, that you are in the same mess that he's in. It just looks different. That he needed to repent of his sin and you need to repent of your righteousness. Your self-righteous, hypocritical stuff, your idolatry. It's the same sort of thing. You, are, you do share fallen genetics. You are a part of, of the fallen race of Adam. And I, you, need, you need grace just as much as he does. 
just like him, not worthy to be called my son. And yet here I am inviting you into it, wanting you to be in the family. Fourth and finally um, is this enter um, this idea of entering freely in. So first coming to yourself, second, owning your sin, getting real with God about what you've what you've done, what you've made of religion and things, acknowledging your place that you don't you don't belong. You're not somehow separate from other sinners, (laughs) that no one has a claim on the family room of God. But we get there by way of grace. And then finally, the invitation comes. Enter freely in son, get into the party. Here's where we remember, I mean, contextually speaking here, it's amazing. The son has absolutely smeared the father's image into the dirt at this point. I mean, you, you, you know that. The older son, um, as he's standing there pouting and protesting on the porch, I mean, you recognize that the whole village is in partying, celebrating at this fa- with this father. But the father's own son won't come in. So what does he do? Does he come out in a rage and scold his son? Try to slap him into submission, strong arm him back into the party so he can protect his image and things look good. And people don't start whispering, man, this father can't catch a break. His younger son goes off and makes an embarrassment of him. Now his older son is. No, that's not what he does. Instead, he comes much in the same way that he came to the prodigal, out with kindness, grace, tenderness, and he entreats his son to come in. He loves his son. There's compassion here for both the prodigal and the hypocritical religious folk. But the older son is facing a dilemma as he's invited in, because for him to come into the party, it would mean he'd had to open his heart up to grace. That's what it means to enter this party. It means to open up the reality that I, I, I need. That I actually do belong around the table with people like the younger son. With people like the prodigals. With those sinners that were cut from the same sort of cloth. That I need the same sort of grace that he does. That I've been empty and I want to be full. And the only way I can get full is to sit down at the father's table and let him serve me. That's critical. That's critical for the religious folks. Let him serve me. There's this amazing summary statement of the gospel in Mark 10:45, where it says this. The son of man, Jesus now, who I would call the third son in this parable, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Did you hear it? Jesus did not come fundamentally to enlist you to serve him. He came to serve you. God doesn't need your service. You don't want the wage that you will get. The wages of our sin is death. Instead, God comes to serve us. The son comes to serve us. You cannot become a Christian. This text is saying. You cannot come home to God. You cannot find deep and lasting fulfillment unless you first let Jesus come and serve you. Now, for the prodigal, the idea of the son paying his ransom, the idea of this third son, Jesus, paying his ransom, washing him clean, all the mud and the muck and the pigs stuff, that idea seemed too good to be true for the prodigal. 
I'm not worthy of your service. I, I could never. No, I, I don't deserve that. I'm filthy. But for the older, the religious son, this, this, this offer of, of, of Jesus' serving, getting down, washing, going to the cross, dying for your this sort of thing. Th- this offer of, of, of Jesus' service is actually an offense. It's not too good to be true. It's too bad to be true, if that makes sense. I don't need it. I mean, this is offensive. You're saying I need to be served? I've been serving. I can, I, look at me. I'm not dirty. You say I need to be washed? I'm clean. So whether they're prodigal or they're religious, hypocritical, both, both can't enter in unless they let the Son, Jesus Christ, serve them. Unless they let Him pay their ransom. For the older Son, my goodness, what is Jesus doing on the cross? He's taking the beating that He deserved for His hypocrisy, for his facade, for his, 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 his inner sort of scheming, for his prostituting of God, treating him like a slave, for his trading of God's glory and relationship with him, for his stuff. Jesus is dying for that. He's treated like the hypocrite. Treated like the sinner. So that when he comes down off the cross, he can invite the religious folk and the prodigal in. So my encouragement to us this morning is to stop playing the religious game. If we're coming to church and sort of a give and take with God, man, forget it. Let it go. Let's let the son serve us in his grace. And then, you know, what we'll find we will still serve him, but we'll serve him with joy. We'll serve him with gratitude. And we'll be close to the father's heart in it. Let's pray. God, thank you for. Your mercy to us. We are. We are. I mean, in this room, we are prone both, no doubt, to prodigal lifestyles and religious lifestyles. We're prone to wander. uh, Sometimes, even as we come into church, (laughs) we're prone to make of our uh, faith and, and, and this religion something that you never intended it to be. We externalize it. And we miss you in the middle of it. Jesus, we need your grace. We're down on our faces with the prodigal and with the oldest son. Our ways of trying to find home, our ways of trying to to get full have left us empty. We want to come in. Thank you for the invitation that we have in you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Guys, this is the time in our service where we uh, respond to the Lord with our um, song. We also will uh, have uh, home group leaders available on the side to pray for you if you need it in any way. Uh, We'll take up our offering at this point as well, where we see ourselves as just kind of giving back to God uh, freely of what he's given to us. And um, we also have the table available for communion. And this really is a picture of what the, the, the prodigal and the older son are being invited into. It's this feast. It's this banquet. And the only way you get in there, I mean, Jesus is the host. Jesus is the server. Jesus is the meal. It's his body broken. It's his blood poured out. That's how we get in. 
That's how we get around that table. And so during the four songs, feel free. If you are in that place with Christ, resting in him, trusting him, wanting to feast on him, come to the table and eat and drink. God, it is an amazing thought. That there really is um, a place for us around your table. That our names really are recorded in the book of life. That my name is there, written in the blood of Jesus. That you welcome in rebels, whether we've been rebellious in sin or rebellious in our empty religion. And you forgive us. You make us whole. You bring us home. God, we rejoice in who you are and what you've done. And I pray we would settle into that identity that you have called us your children, you've called us sons, you've called us daughters. And you've redeemed us to be so. Thank you, Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen.